Well, last Lord's Day, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity, the fact that all men are sinners, all mankind are, are polluted and guilty before God. All the scripture says are at enmity with God, dead in trespasses and sins, and by nature, the scripture says, are children of wrath. Uh, that is, man in his fallen condition uh, is corrupt from head to toe, totally depraved. And again, as a reminder, total depravity uh, does not mean that, that human beings have no sense of right or wrong. Total depravity does not mean that they're void of a conscience or, or that they lack you know, qualities uh, beneficial to society or, you know, actions that are pleasing to society because there's many whose actions are very helpful. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. That is that every sinner is as evil as he or she could be. But all mankind, men and women alike, are completely unable of doing any spiritual good. That is, they can do nothing that pleases God. We are fallen by nature, and fallen man wants nothing to do with the true and living God. Now, he'll gladly attempt uh, to create a God in his own image to support and validate um, his own corruption, but Romans 3 is clear. There is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. But yet, many Christians make the mistake of thinking that because people are seeking that which only God can supply, such as peace and the relief from guilt and ha happiness and personal fulfillment, that they must be seeking God. No, they're seeking what only He can provide. Man's depravity, or we could refer to it as his total inability um, to deliver himself from the bondage of sin is grounded in the fact that his human spirit is dead from birth. Therefore, a man must be born again. So how then, if he's born dead, how can his moral will possibly be free? We discussed that last week. Total depravity means that man in his natural condition is entirely incapable, number one, of doing anything for God or desiring anything that's pleasing to God because we're dead to God. We are dead to his word. What can a dead man do? Nothing. So what then about this matter of salvation? What about this matter of salvation. Since scripture declares you were dead, we wanted nothing to do with God. How is it that we're here this morning desiring God and loving the Lord? Because he's done something that only he can do. In you. By way of his grace. Ephesians 2.4 God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's transformed you. He's given you spiritual life. He has regenerated you. Titus 2, or Titus 3, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but 
according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, why? Question. Why has God done the supernatural in you? Yet, as we sit here this morning, we all have friends, we all have family who've heard the same message, they've been exposed to the same gospel, yet they continue in unbelief. Why you? Why? Is it because you're better? Is it because you're not as bad? Is it because they really are dead in trespasses and sins and you were only in a coma? (laughs) Or is it because you chose to submit your quote-unquote free will, which is mythical? Free will to come to God anytime you please is a myth. If that were true and you chose to submit this supposed free will and they reject to submit this free will, then can you boast? Most certainly, you can boast. So why you and not others? Why you, as others, remain in unbelief and many die in unbelief? Quite simply, it is due to the divine, sovereign, unconditional election of God to you. You were chosen by God to believe. Sadly, this biblically declared doctrine known as divine election, unconditional election, among believers is a very divisive doctrine. Have you experienced this? Perhaps you're here this morning, rather divisive over the fact. There are actually professing Christians who hate even the mention of the idea of predestination. They hate the idea of God's unconditional elective choice. They hate it. I was looking at a book advertisement. Uh, I was looking through Christianity Today, and you know they have pages where you know books are for sale and whatnot. Here is, here's the title of a book, Satan's Big Lie, The Doctrine of Predestination. Yes, yes, in Christianity today. Now, some people call themselves Christian, and they see this glorious doctrine as unfair, is a doctrine that comes not from God, but from the arch enemy of God, Satan himself. But to be confronted on the pages of Scripture with the fact that God chooses who will be saved, there are those who respond emotionally. And here's the problem. It's that we respond emotionally. We find it hard to accept the fact that God determines who he will save. Now, can you understand those feelings? I can understand the feelings. I can understand the emotion. I mean, we've all, we all battle with, especially because we have loved ones who don't believe. But we must remember, beloved, 
when we come to these difficult to accept doctrines, as we read throughout Scripture, it's not difficult to understand. It's on the printed page. It's only hard to accept. And any truths of Scripture that are difficult to accept as being true, because they do not align, they do not line up with our emotions or our reasonings or our concepts of human will and understanding, we must remember Everything that we use, all of the faculties that we use to gauge such truth as election are flawed. They're fallen. So your emotions, your reason, uh, reasoning these things or your ways of thinking, they're all corrupted. And as such, we have the tendency then to recreate or recalculate Doctrine that is clearly taught in the Bible. Can I get a witness from the right to the left? (laughs) Glory. (laughs) But brother, brothers and sisters, brethren, beloved, we do not determine what is true or what's not true for the sake of simply satisfying our emotions. That's a foolish mistake. So even though things might not make sense to those parts of us that are fallen, we have to remember we're not God and we have no right to reformulate his plan and his purposes. Key word this morning, his purpose, okay? Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So since our emotions and our reasonings and our ways of thinking are fallen, they cannot be left to themselves. They must be brought under the authority of what? The sovereign word of God. The authority of Scripture. Now, due to the fact that a true exegetical study of the facts of Scripture may indeed cause such an emotional response, along with an assault on our human pride, many people simply ignore this doctrine altogether. Don't want to talk about it, don't bring it up, and so on. But, since divine sovereign election is one of the most foundational doctrines in all of Scripture, to ignore it, to disagree with it, is to stunt one's own spiritual growth. You will stunt your growth if you simply ignore this. There's always a price to be paid in in neglecting or distancing yourself from God's divine revelation of himself. And many people do it because their emotions are too caught up in this thing. Unconditional election is one of the basics of salvation. This is soteriology 101. Amen? Amen? Doctrine of Salvation, Soteriology, 101, Divine Sovereign Election. So, for the mature believer, the one who has submitted his or her emotions and reasonings and their way of thinking to the authority of Scripture, they come to realize eventually, and and let me get a witness here if you agree with this, this doctrine, once you understand it and submit your uh, emotions to the authority of Scripture, uh, this is fuel for the soul. It fuels worship, 
It sharpens the mind. It strengthens the spirit. It intensifies courage and motivates our efforts within the church and evangelistically. Because it's not on you. It's not up you. It's not up to you. Although we're called to disciple our children, it's not up to you to save your children. And just because they're born into the family doesn't mean they're automatically in. So the ground of election is in God himself. It's unconditional. That is, man can do nothing to merit eternal life, as illustrated for us in Romans 9. Where, where we see here in Romans 9, we see the doctrine of divine election as well as divine, here's one everybody loves, reprobation. Romans 9.10, when Rebekah had, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, see that word purpose of election, might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. Here you have two sinners, God chooses one, he leaves the other in his sin, who will be punished for his sin. Hebrews 12. Esau. Now it's at this people that, it's at this point people cry what? Foul foul. God is unfair. God is unjust. So Paul continues. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And once again, God's ways are higher than our ways. Okay, now, every Christian, every single Christian believes that God chooses some to be saved Okay, unless you're a universalist and you believe everyone's going to ultimately be saved, you're not a Christian, if you believe that. If you're a universalist, you're not a Christian, or perhaps very confused. But everyone believes that God chooses some and leaves some. Just a cursory reading of Scripture leads you to see the words chosen, predestined, elect, and elected. However, in agreeing that that God undeniably chooses some and passes over others, the matter at hand this morning for us is on what basis does he choose some and not others? Are you with me? In 1610, the followers of Jacob Arminius, known as the Arminians, made the second point of their five points of Arminianism as what's referred to as conditional election. That is, God has chosen certain individuals to be saved on the basis of foreknowledge of what they will do by their own powers of self-determination. And what they do is they make the mistake in confusing foreknowledge with foresight Rather than for love. For knowledge means to for love, not to foresee. A modern version of that comes from a professor at a Dallas Theological Seminary. Quote By election, we mean the sovereign act of God in grace, whereby he chose in Christ Jesus for salvation 
all those whom he foreknew would accept him. That's classic Arminianism. And it's just as flawed today as it was in 1619 when all five points of Arminianism were deemed as heretical. Where as a result, five subsequent biblical articles were written to form this beautiful acrostic, this beautiful flower, tulip. (laughs) Also known as the five points of Calvinism. Named in honor of the French theologian John Calvin who, as I said last week, was 54 years in the grave when they penned these. So the Arminians' conditional election, that doctrine uh, is, is most certainly flawed as it fails to recognize total depravity. And if you fail to recognize total depravity, there's no way you can understand unconditional election. It becomes conditioned upon what the man does. That is why Arminians, the Arminians' first line of attack was against man's absolute inability that we looked at last week. And therefore, it creates what's known as free will, which doesn't exist biblically as far as man. We know man has a free will. He can do whatever he wants. You can come and slug me right now in your free will. Yeah? You can. You can try. That was a good one. Good one. So if that's the case, then God in the end does no real choosing, does he? He just ratifies the sinner's pre-known choice. And if that's the case, then God, when he looked into the future, he saw that I was going to believe his gospel. Okay? He saw that I was going to believe. So God says, in effect, good job, Johnny. Good job, son. Now, based on your decision to exercise faith in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have now provided the basis for which I choose you to be saved. So if you think of foreknowing as foresight, then you believe that. And that will make perfect sense. Now you can take credit. You can boast. Does that confirm or contradict this teaching of Scripture? It contradicts it. Right out of the chute. Now, we all know and we all agree that God never intended to save everyone. Amen? Because whatever God purposes to do, He does. Everything He purposes to do. Isaiah 46, 8. Remember, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. What? Declaring what? The end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my, here it is again, purpose. Everything I purpose to do will come to pass. Quite simply, due to the fact that everything that there is, is his. He is creator. He has called all things into existence. And out of this realm of humanity, he chooses to save some. What did Jesus say about the broad road? Many are on it. It's wide and many are on it. Jesus said, 
at the conclusion of the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew twenty two fourteen, For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many here, few respond. Why do few respond? Because few are chosen. So is God's choice conditional upon the foreseen faith of a sinner? Because if it is, then we have to ask, on what basis does God choose to save some? Is it some virtue within them? Is it the foresight of an expressed faith in the future? I hardly think so. Because if it was, if it were, it would prove to be meritorious before God. Conditioned upon man's choice of God. That's conditional election. Conditioned upon what Tom's going to do. Is God looks down the chasm of time. Okay? It's either that or is this choice of God altogether unconditional and as such determined by nothing other than God's own pleasure, will, and what's the P word of the day? Purpose. Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10. Behold, this is the Lord who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, or my elect, I call you by your name. I name, though, I name you, though you do not know me. Who chooses whom? Did Israel choose God, or did God choose Israel? Did Abraham call God or did God call Abraham? It's all God. It's always been God. Always will be God. In Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, said Jesus, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, what? Chooses to reveal him. In other words, all the prerogatives of choice belong to the triune God according to his purpose. His purpose. Whether it's the call, whether it's the call of certain sinners to be brought to himself out of unbelief and into saving belief, or his choice to leave others in the place of unbelief. Now, Paul draws up another argument in Romans 11, and he uses uh, an illustration of, of Elijah the prophet. You remember uh, Elijah after he defeated uh, all the uh, prophets of Baal? Elijah feels like he's the only believer, and he goes on the run in fear of Jezebel and what she threatens to do and all this. And he says, I, and, and, and Paul records this, says, I alone am left, and they seek my life, but... 
What is God's reply to him? Paul asks. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, notice, so too at the present time, at Paul's day and in our day, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the, on, I'm sorry, no longer on the basis of works. Other, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Notice, the elect obtained it, but the rest were what? Hardened. Hard to understand? No. Difficult to accept? Perhaps. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. You see, beloved, on the other side of the coin of divine election is divine reprobation. That is God's predetermined will to leave some men in their sins. That is to pass over them and leave them in their sin to be punished for their sin. Now, some cry out at this point, that's not fair. That is, that God punishes the guilty. Should God not punish the guilty? Should he leave the guilty alone? No, of course not, because he's just. And men by nature, what do they want? They want God to leave them alone. That's what they want. Be thankful God didn't leave you alone. You don't want God in your life. You don't want God pestering you, convicting you. Leave me alone. Stay out of my life. God does not coerce them to sin, those he leaves to themselves. He doesn't create new evil in their hearts. He simply leaves them in their nature as their own choices and their own desires always refuse the gospel and he calcifies them in their position of unbelief. He passes over them. That's the difference between goats and what? Sheep. Praise God, you're a sheep. Because only the sheep will believe and come to Jesus. Notice what Jesus said again in John 10, 25. Jesus answered the Sanhedrin, and, and he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. And again, I, now I brought this up a few weeks ago, but notice what he says. You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, you're not part of my flock because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Notice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. Precondition, I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. All those who are appointed, that is ordained to eternal life, will come to Christ. Remember how the Gentiles responded to this? The, the gospel message was going out to the Gentiles through Paul, the apostle. In Acts 13, 48, notice this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is, as many as were appointed to eternal, eternal life, what? Believed. Appointed, which means to determine. To order, to ordain, to set in order. 
and as many as it was determined that would have eternal life, believed. Easy to understand? Always easy to accept? No, because our reasoning is fallen. So we get all emotionally whooped up. We do. We're human, right? And we start bantering with God, as we will see. Who are you, O man? Right? That's what we do. So those whom the Father has determined to save were ordained to eternal life apart from any condition on their part. It was unconditional in that God delighted to foreknow them, to place his love upon them. He delighted to do so because it was according to his, what? Purpose, thank you, purpose. John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he, what? will and not to those he doesn't will how do you suppose jesus would respond okay he's walking through galilee he's doing his ministry he's preaching how do you think jesus in a human body would would respond to the father passing over some in not enabling them to believe Scripture says it was, it was an opportunity for him to praise the Father. Matthew 11. Jesus is passing through Galilee. He's preaching in all the towns. He's preaching in the villages. And the majority are rejecting him and his message. And therefore, he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Right? You remember the woes? It'll be easier on the day of final judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because you've been, you've been shown more. Jesus stops dead in his tracks. And notice the content now of his worship. He begins to worship the Father. Notice what he says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious what? Gracious will. He dresses the Father as Lord. That means Lord over the entire universe that he created. And both doctrines of divine election and divine reprobation were cause for Jesus to praise the Father. That is, to praise him for revealing and concealing his gospel. He praises the Father. That is, Jesus is praising the Father for those that God chooses to save and those he chooses not to save. Hard to understand? No. Difficult to accept? Perhaps. Romans 9.16 so then, says Paul, it depends not on what? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up. For what purpose? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he what? 
hardens whomever he wills. Some say, I don't like this hardening business. Well, when you read Exodus, Pharaoh never complains. This is what man wants. They want nothing to do with God unless he invades your life. You know, this nonsense I hear these preachers, they wrap up the sermon with a call, you know, salvation call or altar call or something, and they say, you know, God's a gentleman. He's not going to... He's only going to tap on the door. You have to let him in. Not according to the scriptures. He blasts the door open. In due time, whenever he's chosen to save you, he kicks it open. And he causes you to believe he, because you're dead in there. You're stinking up the room. You're a carcass, spiritually speaking. He brings you to life. Did you reach up and open the door because the knob's only on the inside? No. Because you're dead. So after all this hardening talk, Paul knows someone will be chafed. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Okay, if God's going to harden people, how can he find fault? For who can resist his will? So just in case you happen to think like the common Arminian today, Paul has a question for you. Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honored use and another for dishonorable use? And notice this. If this Armenian view, you know, conditional election, the fact that God looks down the chasm of time, And depending upon what you're going to do, right, if you choose him, therefore, based on that, he chooses you. If that were true, if that were true, no one would be talking back to God, right? If it were true, no one would talk back to God. And the point here in Romans 9 is that man is so offended by the fact that God sovereignly chooses, they talk back to God. Just as they do to this very day. When they hear this, what do they say? They put their hands on their hips, wag their head, and they say, well, I'll tell you right now, I refuse to worship a God who elects some and appoints other to wrath. Humble yourself. Because all anyone deserves, beloved, is wrath. And be thankful that he didn't appoint you to wrath. Because some are. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. These believers is the group in which he addresses here. 1 Thessalonians 5 9. God has not destined us for wrath, which means some have been destined for what? For wrath. I can't understand that, but his ways are higher than mine. His thinking is higher than mine, his ways are greater than mine. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. To what? To obtain it. You know, God even holds back his wrath for the sake of the elect. In Mark 13, where Jesus is talking about the great coming judgment in 70 AD upon the temple, which foreshadows, likely, future judgment, he said this, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But 
for the sake of the the elect whom he chose, he what? He shortened the days. In 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Context, judgment. God's wrath, final judgment. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Okay, the question is all who, because people use this and they say, see, God's up there wringing his hands, looking down, going, come on, you can do it. Choose me. Come on. Does God wring his hands looking down here going, man, I'm just hoping. I'm just hoping that the chows are going to accept me. No. When God's talking about this judgment, he says he's not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. The Lord's not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's the you he's referring to? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, the beloved, the beloved ones. Who's the beloved? The elect, God's church, God's bride. So if this is the second letter I'm writing to you, the beloved, let's go back and look at the first letter and see who it's addressed to. To those who are elect. In other words, there's God's elect that aren't yet what? Converted. And he holds back his judgment until he converts them. So he holds back his wrath for the sake of the elect. In John 17, 9, the great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Young Timothy, who would be facing all kinds of difficulty and hardships as a young pastor, Paul writes him and, and he says, look, fan in, the fl- fan in the, f- the flame, you know, the gift given to you. And he said this for 2 Timothy 1, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own what? Purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before what? Before the ages began before time. God chose to save you if you're saved. So the ground of election is based upon God's divine plan according to his what? Purpose. And his foreknowledge is founded upon his purpose, not the works of the elect. Not what man does, what he's already predetermined to do. God. What he's predetermined to do. So the ground of divine election is God himself unconditionally electing some. Not conditioned upon seeing what man will do. For then man could boast. Paul suffered for the gospel, did he not? He suffered greatly. And a lot of times you wonder, why on earth? Dude, I'd be running for the hills in some of those situations. But by the grace of God. Paul tells us why he suffered so much. Second Timothy. 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may what? Obtain, which means some of them have not yet obtained the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Here, this is great. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, here it is, God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise? Well, that's not very fair. He's going to shame some people by, you know, choosing a fool like me? Apparently so. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, things that seem so great, so magnanimous, so that no human being might what? Boast. He says, I choose so you can't boast. What does the Arminian do with that? Paul says here, God's glory is best served for him to choose the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. Verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You can only boast in him. You're in Christ Jesus this morning only. You're in Christ Jesus this morning exclusively because God did it. None of it's because of man's choice. But I choose to follow Christ. That's right, you do. Because he changed your desire by giving you spiritual life. It's truly a gift. No man has boasting rights at all. We're chosen by God unconditionally. Amen? One writer says this, rebellious, sullen, bitter man in his unregenerate state hates any doctrine that refuses to give man at least part of the glory. End quote. And amen. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are what? All things to him be the glory forever, ever, all men. Elections unconditional on the basis of God's sovereign will and purpose, period. And amen. Now, we're going to, I don't know, maybe in the last study on preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints, I'm going to talk about how to kill this glorious doctrine known as Calvinism. There's a book out entitled Killing Calvinism. And what, what he's saying, the author is saying, his premise is this. When we come to understand, by the grace of God, these glorious doctrines, many of us then have the potential to become very prideful and go slaughtering all of our friends who still adhere to an Arminian type of mindset. And that's what we do not want to do. Amen? We do not want to do that. 
you just reason from, let the scriptures speak for themselves. Reason through the scriptures. We had groups of people here who were that called, we call it, it's called uh, cage stage Calvinism. And that you come to understand the glorious doctors of Calvinism, and when you get all hyped up and excited about it, you need to throw some people in a cage for six months <laughs> and let them mature because they do so much damage in their immaturity. Amen? That's why we don't wave the flag here. Calvinists. It's, we're biblicists, which is Calvinistic, which is apostolic, which is christ centered it's god's it's god's doctrine not calvin's it's called calvinism because he had such a high view of god the god of doctrine so may we not be ignorant arminians and may we not be prideful calvinists 